Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 43, The Phantom Major. Just as an enemy can always be relied upon to show you your weaknesses, their praise for you after the contest, more than anything else, measures the degree of which you frustrated him or her. So, during the titanic struggle between the Rommel-led forces and the Allies, with its various British leaders in North Africa, the following diary entry of the Desert Fox speaks volumes. Quote, during January, a number of our AA gunners succeeded in surprising a British column in Tunisia and captured the commander of the 1st SAS Regiment, Lieutenant Colonel David Sterling. Thus, the British lost the very able and adaptable commander of the Desert Group, which caused us more damage than any other British unit of equal strength. Unquote. But even this entry does not convey the sheer destruction Sterling and his men brought about. During the SAS's time, with Sterling in charge, a mere 15 months, more than 250 Axis airplanes were made useless. But what's more, Ammunition depots were decimated, petrol dumps were set alight, and countless vehicles were left nothing more than burnt shells. But these are just numbers on a scorecard. The aura the SAS generated caused Rommel to relocate much-needed men from his front to hundreds of miles behind that front to protect his assets. Because that's where the SAS was striking at him. In fact, there were times when the Desert Fox had to give up the coast road altogether, the best developed road of North Africa, to save his supplies and equipment from Sterling and his men. But that's for later. The SAS was created by David Sterling after the dismemberment of lay force of the number eight commando from the Brigade of Scots Guards. Layforce, named after Colonel Robert Laycock, was supposed to capture the island of Rhodes, but that was decided at the end of 1940, when things looked good for the Commonwealth forces in North Africa. But then came the Germans. Their land forces pushed back in Cyrenaica. Their navy made the central Mediterranean hazardous for Allied ships. Then Yugoslavia, Greece, and Crete were captured by the Axis. Taking roads was now impossible and unnecessary. The Allies now had to think of defense. During this change of fortunes in the war, the goals for Layforce changed just as dramatically, never really settling down. Some of Laycock's 2,000-man force served as a rear guard on Crete. Another group went to Syria to help with the uprising there and a third was sent to help at Tobruk, and, in fact, were still there. What was left of Layforce was to be sent against the enemy's lines of communications. But getting the men there was too much for the Royal Navy at the moment. Admiral O'Connor did not want any of his ships risked, unless the chances of success, defined as sinking a good number of enemy ships, strongly leaned his way. So, risking the very ships that were trying to stop more Germans from getting to North Africa could not be risks on sending men behind enemy lines that may or may not affect the larger war, which meant the end of Layforce 
of which Sterling was a part. But he, David Sterling, truly believed that the idea of sending a minimum number of troops behind enemy lines was a sound one. The problem with Layforce, looking at this with hindsight, was that even at 2,000 men, it was too large, too unwieldy, and being ferried by ships, that was also a huge mistake. Special forces of this caliber should be dropped from above, parachuting out of planes. That was how you got a few men behind the enemy. They also had to understand they were expendable, yet if properly trained and prepared, would perhaps not be lost. With this idea, Sterling skulked, literally, his way into Middle East headquarters in Cairo and put his mission statement for this new force in front of Deputy Chief of Staff, Middle East Forces, General Ritchie. Ritchie, seeing the possible merit therein, promised to go over this idea with the new C&C Middle East, General Auchinleck. And his idea was brilliant in its simplicity. Very few men were needed if they were all used and trained properly. This wasn't to be a force that had to fight its way in. Surprise was their best weapon. Drop them close, let them travel at night, lay up during the day, and after getting to the enemy's airfield, plant bombs on as many planes as possible. Again, the men were relatively safe until the bombs went off, but then they should be able to get away in the ensuing confusion. And a plan like this was exactly what Auchinleck was looking for. The Germans were now in Russia, the balance of their forces there, which meant Churchill, back in London, saw no reason not to renew the offensive here in North Africa. But Auchinleck was in charge now, because Wavell misread the Desert Fox, and, to a degree, gave in to his Prime Minister before he was ready. That would not happen again. But now, here was something that would cost the Allies little, even if it all went to hell, could gain them much, and would show the Prime Minister that Auchinleck was doing something. It fit all the criteria. Three days after talking to General Ritchie and leaving his badly handwritten report behind, Sterling found himself standing at attention before C&C Middle East Auchinleck, who, whether deciding yes or no on anything, decided quickly and the ranking man in the Middle East theater had decided that Sterling would get his chance. Now, Captain Sterling was informed he could recruit six officers and 60 non-commissioned men from the remnants of lay force. They were to train at the Suez Canal Zone and prepare to help the Allies as an attack was coming up in November. Auchinleck was going to push Rommel all the way back to Tripoli. Captain Sterling left the room, now in charge of L Detachment of the SAS Brigade. The SAS stood for Special Air Service, which didn't exist. It was just another red herring to give the German counterintelligence something to look for. But this was war, and this was the army, neither of which had any business running smoothly. So it did not for Captain Sterling. The new leader of the newly created L Detachment then met with the Director of Military Information and the Adjutant General's Department, 
where he ran into barely concealed hostility. These men knew Sterling reported directly to the CNC, but that didn't mean they had to like this non-traditional method of warfare, and they certainly didn't have to break their backs in helping him. So they didn't, and they didn't. The first manifestation of this antagonism was when Sterling went to the quartermaster for supplies. He wasn't asking for much. After all, they were a small group that was training to live and work with very little. But even his meager request seemed to be beyond the ability of the smiling man before him. Sterling walked away with only two tents and a not-so-sorry apology. Next, it was time to find his 60 men and six officers. Turns out, there were so many frustrated men from Layforce that David had his pick of some very intense, keen, and intelligent men. Sterling interviewed every single man before he selected him. As for his officers, that was a different story. Oh, they were keen all right. First, there was Jock Lewis, who Sterling found out had nabbed 50 parachutes that had accidentally been dropped off in Cairo. Any man who recognized the potential and confiscated what was needed was a man to have. Also, Lewis had the intelligence to take Sterling's unorthodox ideas about combat and make them intelligible to soldiers. David's other officers were an Irishman named McGonagall, two Englishmen named Thomas and Bonington, and a Scot named Bill Fraser. Yet his last officer was a gamble, which was saying a lot, considering Sterling went with his instincts 110% of the time. The last officer to join was a former rugby player named Paddy Main. He was gentle and intelligent, quiet most of the time, until he wasn't. And then his size and strength made a mess of his immediate surroundings. Oh, and he was currently in hot water for knocking out a superior officer. That squared away, their camp was set up about a hundred miles from Cairo, near a village called Cabrit. It was in the Suez Canal Zone, just next to the Great Bitter Lake. However, the word camp was being generous. Really, they had two tents for personnel and a larger tent for supplies. Not that they had any supplies at the moment. As the men came in, David greeted them and apologized for the current state of their new home. But that was about to change. Turns out there was a New Zealand camp nearby, but the men were out on exercises. The camp itself was guarded by Indian troops. For whatever reason, that camp had no trouble getting what they needed from Q. It was just L detachment Q seemed to have a problem with. That problem was about to be solved. L Detachment's first mission would be against the New Zealanders. Bluffing their way past the sentries was easy, and using their one and only three-ton truck, the men of L Detachment made off with 15 small tents, six wicker chairs, a long table, carpet, wash basins, kitchen utensils, hurricane lamps, a piano, and a bar. Their camp now filled out. It was time for the training, and Sterling had decided, with Lewis supporting him, that L Detachment would be a unit of highest standards in professionalism and combat readiness. 
Yet, as for the latter, only the enemy would see that firsthand. No superior officers were to be flattened. Besides which, David told his group, when they were out in the desert, going days without a bath or shave, well, it was deemed best to look smart in camp, because they certainly weren't going to out in the desert. First, the men had to improve upon their map reading, which would save lives as well as increase the chances of a successful mission. They also practiced disassembling British, German, and Italian weapons. One never knew what would come to hand. But all that was child's play compared to the hikes led by Sterling into the desert with very little to sustain them. Then came the parachuting practice. Yet, sadly for the men of L Detachment, there were troubling times ahead, as the learning curve for them was fatally steep. Sterling's men were using parachutes different from Air Force pilots. There was no ripcord. The static line was attached to the plane and opened the chute as the men jumped out. But after two trials, where everything went well, David watched from the ground as the first two men's chutes did not open. The pressure from the slipstream caused the ring that held the static lines to twist. Thus, all the pressure went to the clips, which gave way. Immediately, other clips were sought after and used from then on. Yet, it cost the lives of two men to learn this lesson. Later on, Sterling would learn that this problem was already known in London and had those parachuting schools ever bothered to return his queries, his men would still be alive. Sterling, in his anger, wanted to lay waste to parts of London. As November and the impending attack came closer, Sterling and Lewis worked out their plans on assisting Auchinleck. It was decided to destroy the aircraft of the five closest German airfields to the front. That would put the skies above in the Allies' control at the vital outset of the battle. Yet how could so few men carry enough bombs to destroy so many planes? What was needed was a smaller, lighter bomb that would explode, destroying a part of the plane, but then ignite to finish off what was left. But after consulting a sapper, it was made clear to them what they wanted was the moon. It couldn't be done. The sapper left without even making an attempt. But Lewis told Sterling it could be done. He just knew it could. He was going to give it a try himself. Using an oil drum with a little petroleum inside, Lewis put a second top over the original. The goal was to build a bomb that would punch a hole through the two lids and then catch the petrol at the bottom on fire. But try as he might, mixing and adjusting his plastic and thermite, Lewis could not get a fire going after the explosion. But then, one day after staring at a small can of oil, Lewis ran and grabbed the can, poured some of the oil onto the plastic, and then kneaded it into the thermite. Again, a drum with two lids was set up, a fuse put into the bomb, and lit. The two lids were punctured, and the petroleum was ignited. They had their truly portable bombs. Now, Sterling's sought-after freedom to wage war in his unconventional way is rarely tolerated in the armed forces. 
El Detachment had its own naysayers. Fortunately, none of them outranked Auchinleck. But there were those, like a group captain from General Headquarters, who came back time and again to watch David's men parachute down. This officer felt no compunction in telling David. His idea was charming, but there was no way his men would get near the German airfields. This pessimism nettled the former problem child, now six foot six Scotsman, who had nothing but pride in his men's accomplishment and courage. So, giving as good as he got, Sterling bet the group captain that he would not only get to the German planes, but that his men could sneak up on the Allies' planes as well, whenever he wanted. This more than nettled the group captain, but David wasn't done. The ante was raised when David told the group captain that he wanted the ranking officer to warn the soldiers at Heliopolis, the main Cairo airfield. But not to fear. Instead of bombs, Sterling and company would leave cards on their planes, say, near the end of October. The ten-pound wager was made. L Detachment's second campaign was against the British. On came four teams of ten men each of L Detachment at Heliopolis. They had ninety miles to cover, so walked during the night and laid up during the day. Each man was carrying his own food, bully beef and biscuits, and four pints of water. It took Sterling's men three days to cover the distance, and during that time the groups became separated, which increased their chances of at least one of them getting through. As each team reached a different point along the two-mile barbed wire fence, it was a simple business to cut through and approach the planes, just as David had expected. Only later did Sterling learn that the group captain had planes sent up, looking for them specifically, but as no one was spotted, assumed the raiders were not yet on their way. Yet by the time the last team left the airfield and made for the army barracks, at Abbasia, each plane had several tags attached to it. Most planes had a tag from each team. When the four groups separately entered a local bar, British soldiers took them for escaped Italian prisoners because of their appearance. Only after consuming much-needed water did their native cursing convince the soldiers otherwise. The time of fun and games was over. General Auchinleck's initial offensive against Rommel was to begin on November 18th. So, elements of L Detachment would be parachuted behind enemy lines on the 16th. They would hold up in an escarpment just south of the coast road and place their bombs on Rommel's fighters on the night of the 17th. All the details were worked out and then gone over and over by Sterling and Lewis. Containers of food, Water, explosives, and the fuses would be dropped with the men. But early on the 16th, bad news came their way. The wind was rising, and rain seemed likely during the time the men were expected to jump. Sterling became anxious at this. Layforce had experienced scrub mission after scrub mission. This delay could shatter the men's morale and confidence, two aspects that Sterling felt was paramount. David talked over the lousy weather with his officers, and collectively they decided to go on as planned. 
Nothing ever went smoothly, but that's why they trained so intensively. Besides, the offensive was still on, and the men of El Detachment wanted to do their part to save as many lives as they could. At the designated time, each of the five teams got into their Bombay aircraft, and Sterling, as this was their first assignment, gave himself command of one of the teams. The rest were led by Maine, Lewis, McGonagall, and Bonington. Everyone knew the weather in the desert was fickle. It could change at any time. But during the 16th, it did not. The planes flew north out over the sea for an hour to approach the African coast from the north, but got lost along the way. The flares that were to help them orient themselves were probably covered over by sandstorms. Finally, after another hour, the pilots of the crews stated they were back on track and almost at the jump-off point. As the green light flashed, the men jumped out in quick succession. David was the first out of his plane. As always, he marveled at the smooth journey towards the ground. Perhaps the wind indeed had died down, as they were all hoping for. But this he wouldn't know until he was back on Earth. As the plane was supposed to be flying at 500 feet above ground when the men jumped, David knew he should be landing very soon. But whenever that moment came would not be known to him until his feet hit, as there was no moonlight and he was surrounded by utter blackness. So Sterling prepared himself for the touchdown. Yet the ground did not come to him. Something must have been off. Suddenly, David awoke to find himself being dragged by his parachute, itself being pushed by the strong winds. Pulling at his release harness, the parachute tore away and continued on its haphazard course. David's body came to a rest. It was then he realized he was being pulled over the ground on his face and stomach. Rolling over, he felt his limbs. Nothing seemed to be broken, but there was blood in his eyes from his time of being unconscious. Sterling spent the next hour searching for the others, waving his flashlight and yelling. The latter did no good as the wind took his words away the second they came out of his mouth. An hour after that, David knew the mission, their first, was destined to fail. One of his men was missing, probably dragged miles into the desert by now, probably still unconscious and the worst for it. As for the rest of his men, they were practically non-operational themselves. One had a broken arm, another an injured wrist, while two others would be limping for the immediate future. But the situation of their supplies was far worse. From what containers they could find, they now had twelve water bottles, food for one day, and six blankets. The seemingly good news was the discovery of six containers of Lewis bombs, Yet they realized their fuses were in a separate box, which had not been found. The only weapons they possessed were their sidearms. Yet, despite all these setbacks, Sterling's character was not one to give up that easily. He might not be able to take out Rommel's fighters, but perhaps he could still make for the coast road, find the enemy camp, and bring back valuable intel to Auchinleck. Deciding to take Sergeant Tate with him, the rest were told to make for the rendezvous point. If they were near where they were supposed to be, the pickup point 
was only thirteen miles away. But the silence that followed this observation confirmed that no one believed that for a moment. The two groups divided up their meager supplies and started out. Sterling and the sergeant were hoping that, if they were anywhere near where they expected to be, the escarpment was only about 13 miles away. From there, they could spy on the German and Italian forces. Yet, after walking until morning and covering at least 13 miles, by the time the sun rose, the only thing in front of them was more desert. With little choice, they kept walking north. Eventually, they came upon the escarpment, but were not sure exactly where they were along its long range. They saw the Mediterranean and the coast road, but little else. Then an exceedingly rare hard rain came down on them. Any chance of reconnaissance was lost. With no other options, Sterling decided to chuck it and head for the rendezvous point himself. He guessed that he was somewhere east of Gazala, but not as far as Tobruk, which meant that he and Tate still had about 50 miles of walking to do. Along the trek, Trig El Abd, which was about 40 miles inland from the coast, there was a small hill, and that was where the long-range desert patrol would be waiting for them, and the others, if they made it there themselves. Auchinlick's Operation Crusader was underway by now, with no help from L Detachment. So, heading back south, the two men set out. Only by two o'clock in the morning of the next day did Sterling and Tate reach the meeting point, and what David saw made him realize his men didn't have any better luck than his group. Patty Main's group was able to find each other and their container of bombs, but they couldn't find any fuses, so they were a no-go. McGonagall's entire group was missing and would never be seen again. Bonnington's pilot had gotten completely lost, so then used his wireless for help. Yet the Germans were the ones that picked up his message and in flawless English talked the plane down, right into the enemy's waiting arms. The rest of Sterling's group, led by Sergeant Yates, had been captured by the Germans. Jock Lewis and his group made it back, but without two of their men. Yet they had been unable to strike at the enemy as well, due to a lack of supplies. All told, the first mission of El Detachment had been an utter failure. Of the 55 men and 7 officers that went out with David, only 18 men and 4 officers had returned, and most were banged up. But in terms of harsh reality, Sterling had learned so much from this expensive lesson. First, why parachute the men in? Clearly, the long-range desert patrol had the ability to sneak far behind enemy lines. And had an L detachment just spent days behind those lines? If it weren't for the storm, they could have wrought a tremendous amount of damage and gathered valuable intel. Also, from now on, supplies were no longer to be packed separately. Instead, each box would have a little of everything inside. Many German fighters could have been reduced to smoldering rubble, if not for that misstep. No, despite the failure, L Detachment still had something to offer, if they ever got another chance. 
Surely those more traditionally-minded military knobs, as well as the personal enemies of Sterling that he had made along the way, would use this catastrophe as an excuse to shut him down, before he had a chance to show what his men could do. The only answer to that was to not let the adversary, in this case Allied officers, get that chance. L Detachment needed a few successes under their belt before anyone could find them and question Sterling about this debacle, which meant he had to avoid Middle East HQ, yet he needed supplies. So, on their way back east, riding with the long-range desert patrol, Sterling told his men to discreetly head back to their camp, get everything they could, and meet him at the Siwa Oasis the current headquarters of the British 8th Army. He was heading there directly to see if he could attach them, at least on paper, to a fighting brigade, so they could access their supplies. Then they would get the latest information on the offensive, find a way back behind Rommel's lines, no matter which way that line was moving, and attempt another strike at the enemy. Greetings, everyone. Ray here. Um, please don't forget, Christmas is right around the corner. So if you have anybody who's difficult to shop for, got coffee mugs, hats, CDs, T-shirts, that kind of thing. Um, this episode's completely randomly selected winner of a coffee mug, uh, FDR or Churchill, is Janet Mustin. So Janet, uh, send me an email to WWII podcast at gmail.com with your address and I'll be happy to send that out to you. So I will um, be back as soon as I can with um, Operation Merita Part 2. Take care everyone.